This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a severe advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a great show today for you, talking with Warren Pies of 314 Research about his outlook, his modeling of the markets, and what he sees as big issues going into next year. But Professor Siegel, we've got some uh, good news today, this morning. Markets are responding. I'm curious to get your take on all that was reported today. Oh, yeah. Wow. What a week. All right. Let, let, let's let start first with the Fed. Um, basically, after I heard uh, Powell, I said, all right, he's giving the all clear for the market to go up. Basically, he's not uh, at this point really worried about inflation. He's not accelerating any um, uh, or, or even talking about uh, accelerating rate increases. Yes, he's putting the taper in place, but the market expected that. What they're worried about is a more rapid taper and increases in rates, and he gave no indication of that at all. Uh, I think he's wrong, uh, but, but, you know, clearly, um, uh, once he, I heard that, I said, well, market's going to keep on going up until he pivots. Um, so uh, we'll talk about that in, in, in just a moment, but clearly uh, – that's that's an all you know basically Fed gave an all clear sign. Of course, the next meeting is December fifteenth. Uh, there's going to be a lot of data that's coming in between uh, now and then. Uh, let's get to today's data, um, which you are right, Jeremy. Uh, good, good on two fronts. Um, first of all, on uh, let's see, the employment numbers are are good, above expectations. Unemployment rate down below. Um, uh, uh, hourly earnings in line after a you know a bad ECI report last week. Um, only thing disappointing again is labor participation not up, seemingly permanently or down. I mean we've taken a, a step down there. Um, hours worked also. People didn't talk about that down to a uh, 34.7, 34.8. Uh, so it's sort of interesting. I've, I've taken a look. Hours worked are about a, a percent um, uh, in uh, percent and a half above what they were pre-pandemic. So people are working longer, uh, but the employment um, uh, participation rate is four percent below. So the longer is offsetting not even half, but some of the the fact that people aren't coming to work. But uh, the labor shortage is still definitely uh, definitely there. Um, we also got the great. You know, the great news about the Pfizer uh, drug, uh, I mean, this is, uh, uh, and of course, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who we've talked about so many times on this show, basically saying, you know, the pandemic is over. I mean, if this drug works out as successful as these trials, um, COVID will be much less a factor than even seasonal flu in the future. Um, that it ninety uh, percent effective, but we don't have anything on flu that that's effective. And don't forget, bad flu years we co eighty thousand a year. So and this could uh, really render uh, COVID down way down low, and it could be taken up to three days after symptoms, um, which is even much uh, later than something like Tamiflu and some of the other much less effective flu drugs. So we're, we're going to have to, you know, see what it means. But this might put an end to COVID, uh, COVID restrictions. And uh, of course, you see the huge uh, reopening trade on the airlines, on the cruise lines, uh, et cetera. Uh, in in uh, uh, response to that, I expect that to continue. Yeah, that's sort of really positive, positive personal news there on on uh, on what, what he was saying there. 
Um, so in terms of the, the, the rotation, so you're seeing the reopening trades, you see small caps over large caps value again. Are you surprised with what's happening in the rates market today with all that other yeah. stuff that's rates, going on? You know, I, I think, okay, yeah, well, you know, the rates, yeah, why are, why are long rates going down? Um, uh, you know, one, one of the interpretations of that is that this is going to bring people down back to work and lower the supply um, uh, shortages uh, and, and therefore uh, lessen inflation. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think the, the effect of people buying more and being out, pressing on services which require people, is going to overcome the fact that a number of people say, oh, now COVID not a problem or not a big problem, I'm going to go back to work. Um, so in, in, uh, in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I think that the bond market is, is taking this right now. Of course, let's, uh, again, now we're going to get two critical reports next week, Tuesday and Wednesday. We get the producer price index, um, uh, which is expected to be up five tenths of a percent, I think six tenths on the core and consumer, uh, price index, um, four-tenths and five-tenths on the core. We'll see uh, whether those, I mean, those are healthy increases in and of themselves, but we're going to see whether they uh, get punctured on the upside with more increases than are now uh, currently built in. I think Tuesday and Wednesday uh, reports are going to be really important. Um, Oil and gasoline keeps on going up, um, but some of that's going to be in in next week's report, but not all of it. Um, but everything seems to still be going up. I, d- I really don't see alleviation of the inflationary trend. I, I believe, again, it's due to the excessive monetary and, and fiscal stimulus. Um, by the way, I think we're, we're going to get the, uh, as a result of the election, we didn't even talk about the elections on Tuesday. Yeah. Might move business. along the stimulus bill. <laughs> Let's get something done. And uh, that's being talked about Um uh, um, we've already talked about the fact that one of the positive sure stocks is that the corporate tax rate uh, it does not look like it's going up. I mean, um, and although there will be some minimum taxes and, and some higher taxes, it's not going to be as bad as it looked uh, before. And and on the corporate side, I mean, that that was important. That was uh, 10 to $15 on the S&P earnings. Uh, that might be uh, halved or less as a result of the new tax bill. That's another positive feature, um, you know, uh, that that's going forward. Any other uh, election ramifications? So, I mean, the public yeah, had well, a pretty I good mean, show. obviously, a, a really bad defeat for the Democrats. I mean, I was surprised today's New York Times editorial. Well, you know, New York Times, which seemed to be supporting the so-called left wing all the time, sort of says, "Okay, enough nonsense. Let's." try to veer back to the center. Uh, I think a lot of them are saying, well, it's, you know, we, 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 we've got to move to where the voters are. I mean, this is obviously good, uh, I, I think, for business and I think for the economy ultimately also. It, it uh, 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 you know, puts the, puts the Democrats back in the centrist path. Um, and, uh, you know, radical measures uh, now are much less likely. Uh, the power of the radical um, uh, group of the, of the Democrats is is reduced. Um, I mean, in, in, in predicted.com, they now, now the probability that the Democrats uh, will lose the House is over 80 percent. That is overwhelming. This is a year before the election. Um, uh, uh, Senate is closer um, but nonetheless, um, uh, you know, this is this is a, a statement by the American public that we we're we're not in favor of a radical agenda, on, either on the social and um, or on the economic stand. And the Democrats have to uh, obviously uh, uh, take cognizance of that. Well, a lot of a lot of big news this week, Professor. So we appreciate yeah, you. Oh, it was a, it it was a huge week, and uh, next week uh, we'll look at the, the CPI, see whether uh, you know does does it fall on expectations, whether it becomes a political pressure. I mean, a lot of the dissatisfaction again. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, Biden is ranking very low on the economy. The Dems on the economy, and uh, a lot of a lot of that is uh, people see the inflation. 
and it's not yet in the statistics. And, and you know, I've talked about how lagged it is. I don't know how much we'll get in on, on Tuesday and Wednesday, but, uh, um, uh, you know, the people are, are going out there and they're, they're seeing that inflation. They, they are not, they are not happy with it. And, uh, I, you know, I think that that's a, a, a very potent political, uh, force to reckon with also in 2022. All right, Professor. Well, have a great uh, weekend here, and we'll, we'll talk again next week. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Let me turn the conversation now to our guest for the remaining part of the program. We have Warren Pies from 314 Research. Uh, Wisdom Tree became a one of the early clients of 314 Research. Uh, we've been enjoying a lot of their weekly commentaries and notes. They do a lot of very interesting quantitative work on the markets. Warren, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks for uh, thanks for having us and uh, thanks for uh, thanks for subscribing as well. Really appreciate that. Let, for people who are tuning in for the first time to hear you, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and and uh, how you came to start three fourteen research. Sure, I uh, you know began my career actually as an attorney. Uh, this was you know many years ago and. Kind of got bit by the the market bug uh, more than a decade ago, and made the the switch, kind of uh, career switch from practicing law to uh, researching markets. And I, I got my start in the financial world with Ned Davis Research. Uh, started there, kind of at the lower rungs, just as an entry level analyst. It worked myself up, took over coverage of the energy material sectors, then eventually the global energy complex, and finally it was the head of the commodity team. Uh, last year, in the middle of the pandemic, um, NDR basically decided it didn't want to have a dedicated um, energy and commodity coverage anymore, which I think is probably, in retrospect, uh, probably a good a signal. signal. So, I mean, I've been uh, considering the idea of starting my own shop for years, so I got with uh, basically a team of folks who I had worked with in the past at NDR, and we have really good complementary skill sets. We launched 314. Uh, it's been basically a year at this point, a, a great adventure. And we've, I, I think by basically every metric, we've had a successful first year. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but we're, we're ready to start uh, looking towards 2022 and what comes next. It's funny. People give my industry, the ETF industry, a hard time and say, you know, when, when people close funds, that's when you should be buying it. And they sort of gave that example with the coal strategy, I think, the shipping companies. There's all sorts of like little interesting anecdotes of, you know, they give up at the bottom after a very tough stretch. And it's tough, right? When you have things that have been so out of favor for so long, nobody wants to talk about them. It's often a, a sign of the turn. So it's uh, congrats on, on starting your own business at a pretty good time. So for for people who, who, as you think about how you inform your views, maybe sort of talk about, your grounding in in how you build models and think about quantitative research generally before we go into some specific areas. Yeah, I mean that was the big. Uh, you, you don't just start a business just because. I mean, we had a, a whole thesis here, and and the big thesis is that you know I, we wanted to take advanced uh, quantitative uh, uh, approach to the markets and basically take the the data driven macro work that I was known for at NDR and apply really. Uh, newer school uh, data approach. So my partner, my, my chief data scientist, is, has a background in, in machine learning. And, you know, that's been some, it's been a huge help as far as differentiating us from, uh, I'd say, the crowd and how we look at things. But beyond just the, the kind of fancy ML stuff, it's just having rigor in how you approach markets and having rules and how you operate. You know, opinions are a dime a dozen. And, you know, we have opinions and we like to look around corners and look out into the distant future. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of that today, but I mean, everything ultimately comes back to models for us. And we start with a, a high level asset allocation approach and really what drives the asset allocation model that we work from the real asset allocation model uh, is this belief that it's likely that the next 25 years in markets is not going to look a lot like the last 25 years. So last 25 years, 60, 40, everyone got by just fine with that. I think you need to expand your asset menu and you need to really tighten up the rules that you apply to those assets, how you rebalance them and, and which assets you avoid at different times and which assets you overweight at different times. And so just having more uh, of an ability to be dynamic within your asset mix and expand that menu. So that was really um, the first big model we launched. 
and it's kind of guided us through this year. It's done really well for us, and it kind of sits in the background and, and, uh, and informs our overall analysis, even when we look out beyond what the model considers. Yeah. Now, we've been saying uh, the 60-40 is dead, too, um, you know, that uh, you got to go beyond the 60-40. Um, we've been talking about equity risk versus bond risk. But, you know, you have a very different quantitative way of getting to what your model is suggesting. I, I find it very, very interesting model um, and should recommend on the, on, the, on the strong performance uh, we've been watching in real time. Talk about how that model evolves, you know, where, where the positions it likes today, maybe some of the, the reasons why, maybe highlight a few things in, in the model today. Yeah, just to give the, the quick background is the model works off of there's 17 assets in the model, including cash. And there are ba- there's basically a three-step process in this model, and it's trend, correlation, and volatility. And we weight according to those three steps um, across these three assets or these 17 assets. And where we're at right now, I mean, the middle of the year, I think, was a bit of a transition period between assets. But there's a very clear signal from the market at this moment, and that's kind of short duration, how I've described it, where our bond uh, sleeve has gone all the way down at the most recent update to like 18% of our allocation. And then when you dig into that bond allocation, our treasury, our long-term treasury position is like 1%. So it's a really different kind of asset mix than what you would see out of a traditional 60-40 where you have like an aggregate bond index or long-term treasuries on the fixed income side. And our equity exposure within the model is basically, I would say, market weight at this point in time, uh, about 40 percent and that's what in this model that's about market weight the real weight has gone from bonds and fixed income to real assets and so within the real asset bucket we've seen real estate bitcoin commodities even gold a little bit has gotten recently uh, more of a weighting there and so the real asset weight has pumped up to the highest level we've seen and uh, since the pandemic, and the the fixed income side has gone down to the lowest level we've seen since the pandemic. And so it's a pretty clear message of short duration. And finally, when you dig into the equity sector, we really partition this stuff out. When you dig into the equity sector, uh, even our, we've ridden big tech for you know most of the last year, and we've kind of scaled back big tech. Small cap has gotten uh, more of a bid, and value has gotten more of a bid within our our equity sleeve. And so, again, when you really dig under the surface, that short duration uh, framework or, or, or bet is really coming through in the current yeah. model reading. So the three main factors, we have trend, uh, which is sort of uh, sort of what a little bit your unique proprietary ways of saying what's working, and, and you have some unique ways of quantifying what's working, and then sort of volatility and correlation. Um, what, if, if you're optimizing to a goal, is is how are you optimizing that? Is it just to provide better risk-adjusted returns? What's your long-term as you're solving this? You know, the 17 asset classes, where it's going to go. How are you thinking about that big-picture goal? Well, I think the optimal well, number one, the first and foremost, is to stay on the right side of any major trends, and to you know, and, and the more assets you have, the better chance you have of finding a truly getting a real solid trend. And, I, you know, if you have 60-40 and you try to put a trend overlay there, or only have, like, the IV portfolio where you have, like, five assets, or I've seen even, like, seven assets. I mean, the more assets you have in a framework that can handle them, the better opportunity you get to find one that has a true, strong trend that you can ride. So, you know, that's the first phase of, the, of this process, is seek, seek out and find those trends. And just to give, like, a quick Diverge, we'll diverge for a second and say, how do we do trends that's different? Just uh, to really simplify it, what usually you see for trend following systems is either momentum, which is comparing point A to point B, and that's basically a rate of change and very simplistic, but that's what academic articles do for the most part. You have moving average cross strategies, which are basically looking at a market at a, a given moving average and saying, binary, is it above or below this moving average? And that's it. What we do is we take regression trend lines at different points in time, run them through every market, and then that's no matter what. If we're using the 63 or 126-day regression trend line, we're using every single data point in that time series, and then we're able to really fine-tune what the trend's doing. We can look at the slope of that line and have that calculated every day and adjust every day as the trend starts to change in one direction or another. We can also look at how that series is trading versus the line, which is ultimately expressed as a residual. 
we can look at that as kind of a mean reversion factor that also can get into some of our models. So, you know, the essential, the, the advantage there is we're using every single data point versus just a t traditional momentum measurement. It's not binary like a, a moving average cross strategy. And, and we can adjust and dial our exposure between one asset and the next. So I think that's a big key for allowing this model to work is how we do trend initially. And then to handle all those assets is really the, the optimization is what I'd call it. And the, we correlate in kind of an advanced way using some ML, we correlate all these assets together and look at, you know, what's the cross, what's the co-movement of these assets? It's, it's a little bit more advanced than a correlation matrix. And then what it spits out is ultimately a grouping of all of these assets and, and how they move together and they create buckets. And we then normalize the volatility of each of those buckets. And so you can open our diagram of how the buckets are, are or how the assets are bucketed. And it's pretty interesting to see how this ML algorithm basically finds relationships that you might intuitively think exist and then to either see that proven out or not proven out uh, is, is always interesting for us. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of, you know, that it, it's being careful in how we put all those components together. And that's, that's the reason we're able to handle that many assets, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very interesting one. I always sort of look, look forward to seeing what, what's moving up and down the rankings of that, that real asset model. One of the key questions, since you, we, let me just re quickly reintroduce, we're talking with Warren Pies, co-founder, uh, CEO of, of 314 Research, very interesting quantitative-based in, investment group. Um, Warren, when you, when one of the papers that you did, and, and we, we sort of published some highlights on our blog talking about it, was your, your piece on stock bond correlations to, and to your point of how you look at correlations. And, and, and this goes to the 60-40 question you know where where bonds have been this perfect hedge for stocks for much of the last two decades not always been and then the role of commodities in the past uh any want to sort of talk through how you thought about the research behind that that work and what your your conclusion is going forward yeah i mean to me that and i think as an asset allocator and any and we're all asset allocators ultimately we're choosing in, either explicitly or implicitly to, to allocate our assets in some way so this is a, a really important question for everybody going forward and so the thing that that as um the market structure that's ruled markets over the last 25 years since 1998 or so has been this uh, negative correlation between stocks and bonds and i think most people are aware of this now we wanted to make this point really clear for, for our clients to show just how um, useful this, this negative correlation has been for asset allocators. So what we did is post-1998, we looked at the 100 worst equity uh, down days in the market and how bonds, long-term treasury bonds, have done on those days. And, and essentially, it's a perfect hedge. You know, bonds are up 83 out of those 100 days since 1998 and uh and, and that's really a perfect hedge and, and you know once you start going through the other assets post 1998 there there's nothing that looks like that gold commodities um uh, of course even people will look at bitcoin now in recent history nothing behaves like that there's nothing that hedges equities like bonds have and, and in fact bonds didn't hedge like that until the last 25 years this is a relatively recent phenomenon so Prior to 1998, those same 100 worst equity down days, bonds were up on 35 out of those. So basically, that, that whole relationship was different back pre-1998 and then post-1998. And I think if you're studying markets, that, figuring out why that relationship changed and is really important because then you can ultimately determine, is that relationship going to be stable as we go forward in the next couple decades, or are we at risk of having a change again? And so that was the way we broke down uh, different assets and, and essentially nothing except for long-term treasury bonds during the last 25 years has hedged your equity side uh, like this. So is, do you have a, a thesis on what was unique about the 1998 period now? Um, what could be the catalyst for changing? I mean, certainly what we've been talking about, why the 6040 is dead, is sort of this inflationary impulse. And uh, Siegel's comment for above-average inflation is, is certainly top of the list of things why it might change going forward. But um, any other thesis of what happened since 98? Well, I, I do think behind it is inflation. So if we look just in a real general sense, 
um, I think when you when you look at markets in stocks and bonds, and we make a really simple model of the world, we say there's just two variables impacting these two things, growth, economic growth, and inflation. And if you removed inflation from that or flattened it for a long period of time and growth was the only factor in your simple model that dictated performance of these two assets, what you would see is um, when growth starts to roll over or is in question, stocks sell off and bonds get a bid. And so I think that is what has happened, that inflation has essentially been removed as a true concern, as something that can really hurt investors over this last 25-year period. And so from that conclusion, you can work and say, okay, what happened in 1998 to 2000 that would have taken inflation off this ta- off the table? And in our thesis is there were a couple big disinflationary tailwinds that started and that these, that crisis usually bookends historical periods. So 1997, 1998, we had the Asian financial crisis, Asian currency sell off. I think that started the, this era. And then we had, uh, you know, the, the euro began trading in 1999. Then you have China introduced into the WTO in 2000. And these kind of were the, the opening catalyst to the relationship, the market structure that we know now. And it's basically an acceleration of globalization and especially focusing on China. We can dig deeper and look at China and see that from 2000, 2013, the, the Chinese working age population grew by 160 million people. You know, so we had a huge pool of labor that we could access there. And, and I think the, the way that we really can prove this is by looking at durable good uh, inflation over this time period. So. When did the stock bond correlation roll over? 1998, right around that time period. Let's take a chart and match up durable goods prices and CPI versus that stock bond correlation. They both move down together. And, and then when you start really peeling back the layers of the onion, you can see that what has been the culprit behind holding CPI down. And for the most part, we've gotten cheaper durable goods and the other parts of the CPI still kind of have gone up. So the disinflationary tailwind, in our opinion, is really the acceleration of globalization, the entry of China into the WTO, which has expressed itself through durable goods deflation through this, this time period. And I, and I think that, just like we said, there were 160 million new Chinese working age population from 2000 to 2013. That number's come down by 43 million since 2013. So their demographics are changing. The relationship between the U.S. and China is changing. China's becoming wealthier. And I think finally, like we said, having a crisis bookend these periods brings us to COVID. And so we're now at COVID. It's obviously a, a, a generational crisis here at this point. And we, I think it's causing us to rethink how we do supply chains. And so, you know, at, at 314, what we did is we looked at earnings calls and we're seeing the number of mentions of reshoring, nearshoring, onshoring spiking. You see it in the Build Back Better plan. There's now incentives, tax credits for bringing plants back to the United States. So I think it's, it's fair to wonder if some of this accelerated globalization that brought us the negative stock bond correlation over the last 25 years will roll back as we exit COVID. That is the big asset allocation question. As uh, And so it, 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 I, uh, I think that is all really interesting insights. Um, we have Warren Pies with us for the hour. Um, let's come to your one of the solutions for inflation. If, if we do believe we're entering a, a regime of higher inflation, that's our thesis. Um, so biasing the sample here. But what are the, the, the best inflation hedges in your view? Um, you sort of had that real asset discussion. You, you talked about a few different things. Let's talk about some of the trade-offs. Uh, and oil has been one of the best places this year. I, I want to get into oil eventually. But sort of start off with where do you think the inflation hedges should be? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit, let's be totally honest, I think it's a little bit of a guessing game because we haven't had inflation, real inflation, for quite a while. So every, you know, whenever we talk about backtesting and we talk about studying markets, we know that we're kind of bounded by history. And so, I mean, it's a good thing because, you know, you want to stick with the data, but you have to realize the limitations of that. So, I mean, if you went back and did the 
study the 1970s and the, the data on a sector basis and industry basis is spotty there and you know well didn't trade freely and there are a lot of other reasons why the 70s are probably not the best analog but it, you know the traditional answer would be to look at oil and and I think the right answer is to have all those potential winners in your system. That's really the philosophy behind the real asset allocation models. Like we need to have, we don't know exactly what's going to win, what in this inflationary uh, regime, or if we remove this disinflationary tailwind. We don't even know if our original thesis will be right. So, like I've had a lot of clients and prospects who say, "Can we get can we get a version that just has no bonds and just." You know, we, we roll options in some way, shape, or form. And my thought on that is just like now we've got like rock bottom bond uh, allocation or model, like you need to have that option because you don't know the world in the future is uncertain. We have a thesis, but you need to have a system to navigate that uncertain future. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, a, it's really a matter of having gold, oil, real assets, Bitcoin, all these different uh, real estate all these different options in your mix, you know, and the more, the more, the, the better you're going to figure out which one works as we go into this inflation. But, but I think oil will be that, that interesting spot. We wrote a report on that yesterday. And I think it, it, you know, cheap oil and abundant hydrocarbons has been a theme that's kind of been a secondary theme to globalization that's helped keep inflation low for many years. If you look at a, a chart of the fed trying to hit their 2% target with CTI and then you kind of put crude oil up against it. Crude oil collapses from the shale revolution and just so much uh, drilling and exploration there in 2014. And that's when CPI fell off its 2% growth rate that the Fed has been targeting. So oil certainly matters. So just like it, it mattered to pull oil on the downside, I think it's going to be one of those things that if and when that reverses, it's going to push on the upside. So you, you don't want to be fighting against that trend or you don't want to be in this inflationary regime when it hits. You wouldn't want to be underweight those those types of uh, assets, in our opinion. Yeah, so you um, certainly have a long background covering oil and, and energy from, from the Ned Davis days, as you mentioned. Let, let's talk through you, and we also talked about how you build a lot of quantitative, rigorous modeling. Let's talk through how you thought about your oil models over time, the inputs, and uh, and as your, your report yesterday, some changing inputs as you're thinking about how do you think about changing models, the process for testing what would cause you to change models. That's sort of an interesting exploration topic anyways. Yeah, I mean, I we did uh, tweak our oil model yesterday, as you know, and uh, that was... I, you know, it was one of the first models we came out with, and it's part of our process here. Like, just like if you're running money and it's not going well for you, you need to examine your process and what's going, what, what, what are you doing wrong, and you better fix it soon. And so uh, we track our performance, you know, uh, really as well as we can, and we publish it, and we we eat our own cooking too. You know, I, I invest my own money in these models, and so it's important for us to have things at work. So every year at the end of the year, we do kind of a model audit process and we say, are we good with what's happened? Has the model in real time done what it was supposed to do over the back tested period? We do a lot of out of sample testing, but you never know until the live bullets start firing how a model is going to work. So when we got to um, say the fall of this year, we kind of had to have a realization. Our oil model had missed this rally. So I had been bullish personally and had kind of diverged from the model in earlier in the year, the first half of the year. And by September, we announced, okay, the model has been stuck in neutral. We have to figure out why and we need to adjust it. So our model runs off four basic components, inventories, uh, positioning, physical market, and technicals. And we went back and looked at all the indicators that we put in the model, and they're all valid. I think it's just, and they all worked actually um, outside of positioning on their own for calling the market this last year. And so, and some of them had excellent track records. So, what we wanted to do is just kind of turn down some of the. We let our ML stuff come into the positioning uh, components, not to get too specific, but we we let our ML. Uh, algorithm go into that uh, indicator. And quite honestly, if you're not at extremes on that indicator, then it's kind of noise. So we wanted to mute some of the, the in-between positioning signals that we got. And I think just by making that little tweak and simplifying a few things on the model, we're going to be in good shape going into the end of this year, 2022, um, and beyond. So yeah, that's just philosophically being able to admit when you've made a mistake. It's, this doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It's just it's going to happen to all of us. 
And so the good thing is we didn't have to redo a bunch of our models. There's really just one that we had to redo after one after a full uh, year of having them live. So, yeah, that's how we approach it. Well, what's really interesting to me about that conversation, um, we're starting to work with some AI machine learning type models within equities. And, uh, you know, one of the teams what we're working with has the, the exact same observation you just made about positioning is how they describe this equity model for picking the individual securities within equities that if you look at the 90% of the readings, they don't matter. It's actually like the extremes on the top and the bottom, sort of this clustering. Like it's hard to interpret what it means in between these extremes and that, you know, at the extremes though, it really matters. So it's, it's, it, it rhymes with exactly what you just said about positioning in oil. Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is there's so much noise in markets. If you have a sophisticated algorithm, like a machine learning or AI system, which is like, you know, you're, you're kind of like a kid in the candy store. You can produce really pretty back tests and stuff like that, but it just means you're really good at sitting in noise sometimes. So you need to, you, it just, you need to be rigorous. You need to make sure that whatever signals you're getting from the models should be logical. If they're not logical and you can't explain them to yourself, then I wouldn't follow that model. And so, this is just the learning process. I think a lot of the industry is going to go through that learning process. Um, you know, and so we're just doing it in real time and making an example for anyone else who goes down that path. So, yeah, but I feel good about where we're at on the model. And, and, uh, like I said, three out of the four components work really well this year. So we're encouraged. So let's give the current read on oil. It's been a huge year for oil. I've been the leading one of the leading commodity plays. Um, as you look ahead, uh, what is, what is our crystal ball from from Warren's models work? What are we saying? Yeah, our model is neutral, so we'll say we'll start with that. We're neutral crude oil. It flipped on October fourth. This new model, um, and I think that's not a bad spot to be. You and I had this conversation earlier in the year, and and I basically said we're not going to a hundred this year, you know, and that's been kind of my my flag in the put my planting my flag that we're not going into these crazy numbers this year. I still stand by that. The thing that's kind of um, put some upside to oil, I think, was the, the, the global energy crisis where we had basically um, China and Europe competing over natural gas supplies, which then led into fuel switching in Europe. So we ended up with like about a million to a million and a half extra barrels of crude oil demand coming out of Europe for heating fuel, which, I mean, that was not in the secular bull playbook. If you were a secular bull all through the year, you didn't see that coming. So it's been a boost. Um we get really positive news today, you know, from Pfizer, which should also, you know, hasten the reopening. And so demand should work well. But I still look out and see the OPEC oil that's coming back to market. And the market has to digest 400,000 barrels every month. And so in my mind, we're going to hit a period of sloppiness over the next, uh, you know, six or nine months. Uh, you know, that's, you know, probably going to keep a cap on oil prices um, as we go through this, the middle of next year. And, you know, ultimately, I think you'll see if that's happening, I'm right, you'd see that flow into term structure, you'd see the steep backwardation that we're in right now start to ease, which would indicate that the market on the prompt, prompt side is starting to become more balanced. And so these are the types of things we'll be watching in our model. And if you if you ask me for my crystal ball, I think the market's going to have some hiccups as we digest this oil. But as as we look past OPEC adding all this oil and exhausting their spare capacity, there truly is a recipe brewing for a super cycle in oil. You know, and I've been sh I've been very hesitant to call that. I think it's easy to mix the the signal of a big rally this year because OPEC's really record restraint um, with calling for a super cycle. I think as we get through that spare capacity being exhausted, there hasn't been investment. Um, and we looked through a few of these charts, and I think the the renewable the renewable zeitgeist has the pendulum has swung too far away from developing oil reserves, and has gone too into this idea that we can just get off hydrocarbons. And if you just work through the basic numbers, it's it's really not possible anytime soon, unfortunately, for the people who were at the conference this last week, for instance. But but yeah, we we see like if you took the IEAs projection of getting our hydrocarbon mix down from 85 to 73 percent over the next 20 years we would still see hydrocarbon grow, uh, absolute hydrocarbon use growing by 20 percent globally so the denominator grows every year even if you get the mix down and that's what most decarbonization plans focus on is just getting that mix down and so 
I think it's way early to declare the death of oil or hydrocarbons here. Uh, let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Warren Pies, uh, co-founder strategist at 314 Research, about some of his work on the oil markets, which has been really the hottest place to be, one of the hottest places to be in the market this year. So it's good to get his his view. Um, you know, in, in terms of these issues of that super cycle discussion, uh, so I, I think you just sort of gave some of the supply-demand balances. When you think about the oil question going forward also, that backwardation contango is one of those confusing issues for, for people who aren't focused on a day-to-day like, like you are. Uh, what if, if you were to say, you know, and, and for people who invest in, in these types of things that have backwardation and contango, the futures market, how do you do you see that as a as for people investing in those futures uh, as a structural positive, structural negative going forward? How is that you know shape of the curve change or expected to change going going forward? Yeah, I mean, if you're if some people argue that you never know the structure term structure of a futures curve when you buy the futures contract, so can you really capture the yield? That gets really kind of like it, it's a philosophic debate, really. But, you know, the, the bottom line is we see that as one of the best signals for, for crude oil flat price and flat price meaning like spot price for the price of crude oil. And that's what's quoted basically on your on your CNBC or Bloomberg screen every day. And in backwardation, yeah, it's, it's a positive if you're it's thought of as a positive if you're long oil and it's a negative if you're short oil. And so we see that in our just another thing you have to adjust for if you're looking at positioning data, the, the shape of the curve. But it's the really basic definition is that your your front months and prompt prices are trading above your farther out prices. And to me, this is not a prediction. A lot of people get caught up in looking at the curve as a prediction, like, wow, the market thinks we're going to be $10 lower in five years or a year from now than we are right now on the prompt side. That's not the way to look at the futures market. It's not a prediction mechanism. It's a market management tool. And so the, the, the curve is shifting the backwardation. It's valuing prompt oil over, you know, three, six, 12 months out oil. It's calling oil out of storage. It means that we're at a deficit, a near-term deficit, and we need the oil that's been stored to balance the market on the prompt market. That's what backwardation means. Contango is, ex- is giving you the exact opposite signal. It's saying that current prices, we have enough oil, so why don't you buy at the front store it and sell it forward and capture that spread. And so like what you're doing is the steeper contangle you get in that you're, you're basically just opening up more and more storage options for you. So it's sopping up oil off of a very sloppy oversupply market right now. We're backwardated. We're steeply backwardated, which tells us that on the prop part of the, the, the market, we are in deficit, you know, OPEC's held this oil off. They're putting 400,000 back. You know, we had, European fuel switching, which has also driven demand and widened out this gap, it shows up in the futures curve. So we're emptying inventory tanks globally at this point in time. And that's why you hear the noise out of like the Biden administration, everyone else is saying, hey, OPEC, come on, give us some more oil right now. But, um, you know, I think OPEC's kind of enjoying these prices. So I, I don't think they're going to move anytime soon. Yeah, and then you have the companies who are being being pretty, or they're trying to be good stewards of capital. They they have not invested as much in capex, or this story of the big the big oil guys doing dividends, or trying to preserve their dividends and not doing as much capex. So perhaps you don't have as much return on on your sort of maybe some additional supply constraints because they're not investing enough to keep that supply coming. Is that is that part of a thesis on the supply side on being more restrained? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that what happened is you have this ownership base for the energy stocks has switched to kind of a short duration asset. The ownership is now in dividend investors, basically. We have it in our our yield model, that yield optimizer model, because we believe that it's become a version of a short duration bond in the equity market. And so, yeah, ultimately, we're in this new phase where drilling is being disincentivized dividends and buybacks are being incentivized. When you look at the numbers for the the U.S. energy sector, we've seen dividends for the U.S. energy sector grow modestly from 2017 to present, while CapEx has fallen by 65%. So, you know, this is not really a sustainable uh, state of affairs because eventually you need to find new oil. If you, if you look at just if we stop looking for oil versus the demand side that we think is going to continue elevating through 2040, 
you know, decline curves start kicking in three, three and a half percent every year, and you have to replenish and then grow that, that base of supply. And so the way we get there ultimately as we get out of this crisis and exhaust OPEC spare capacity, in our view, is by having prices go really high. And they'll go really high, and ultimately um, that will eventually awaken the animal spirits of the industry as they start drilling for oil. And everybody else, even the quote-unquote stakeholders, start saying, hey, I think we needed more oil or that we, uh, we might have divested too soon, let's say. Yeah, that's going to be a really interesting uh, really interesting thesis watch play out. As we go forward, uh, let's talk about a few other assets. I know you've done a lot. Of, you mentioned that real asset model um, being diversified. Energy is one area, but but also gold and crypto, which in some ways you could say are competing to be the inflation hedge asset. Um, so maybe I'll leave that open ended as a as a place for you to comment on. What is is gold an inflation ha- ha- hedge? Is is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? What are we thinking about other inflation hedges going forward? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's funny is we have been in the transitory camp all this year. I do think that the numbers we're all dealing with right now are transitory, but all those long-term issues we talked about, we see as a long-term inflationary uh, tailwind going forward and coming out of this pandemic. Uh, I do think that Bitcoin has stolen flows from gold, and yet uh, uh, it, there's been kind of a thesis. This has been our place as we worked from first principles should we include Bitcoin in our model is, is Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme? You see so many big investors uh, call it a Ponzi scheme over the last few years. And so we had to approach it and say, is there an actual use case? And our, our belief is that when we did our own original work on it, that this is a value transfer mechanism, which is especially, um, which is especially useful to um, wealthy individuals stuck in closed economies. So this is going to help facilitate asset flows. And where do you want those assets to ultimately end up? We think that they're going to flow from closed economies to open economies that respect private property rights like the United States. So when you add that all up, you know, I think Bitcoin and crypto is ultimately dollar positive. Uh, And we've seen this play out since we introduced our thesis as China has increasingly tried to ban and snuff crypto out and the U.S. is now accepting it. ETFs are being approved and you're seeing bipartisan letters being written to the SEC uh, from legislators saying, hey, let's regulate this. And when you hear regulation in the Bitcoin world, you should really hear the word acceptance. That's acceptance of, uh, of the United States of, of this new asset class. And so I think we're in a time where you do not want to be underweight that asset because there are so, there's so much capital lined up waiting to get into the space. And so we see a real use case, and I think you need to have it into your, in your, in your models and your systems uh, as we go forward. It's really interesting to say, you know, I think a lot of the people say like the death of fiat, you know, the dollar is declining and, you know, that's sort of some of the gold people, but it's also the Bitcoin people is that the dollar is going down with, you know, Bitcoin's the only quote unquote store of value there. So it's interesting for you to take the narrative that this is actually dollar positive. Um, and then I know you also do a lot of modeling work on, on currencies. Is is that uh, maybe, maybe not a central focus, but but also something that's that dollar positive today? I mean, it would be. We have a, our dollar model that runs basically off technicals, and it's positive, it's bullish right now, um, which is interesting to see that. I think it's kind of counterintuitive. But, uh, you know, to the extent that we're seeing the dollar climb and Bitcoin being accepted, yeah, I mean, it, it, the one thing we can say for certain is that Bitcoin's rise is not causing the dollar to collapse. And anyone who thinks that, you can be right on Bitcoin for the wrong reasons, and that's exactly what you're doing. If you think that you're buying something that's going to, take the place of the U.S. dollar and, and dominate the new the contract or transactions going forward, you know, you, you can be right because you've been long Bitcoin, it's gone up, but you're not right for the, the right reasons, which uh, I feel pretty strongly about that. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they're, they're going to certainly live together, the dollar and Bitcoin. There's not going to be, um, we're not going to be switching over to the crypto standard anytime soon. For uh, the, we got about sort of three minutes left here. As you think about the, Further areas for people, the types of models you're building. We talked about a number of your models today, from real assets to commodities, a dollar. We didn't really talk about gold, but you do do some some work there. What are the the things you're exploring for the new year? Things you'd say people who are looking for quant research uh, and these types of capabilities. What that that who who? What are the other things that you'd highlight for people? Well, the thing I'm most quantitatively excited for is we're, we're tweaking. We have a sector model. Sector model is pretty interesting. It's benchmarked to the S&P 500. It's got a barbell kind of trade on right now with tech. 
finance, financials and energy all in there as overweights. And we have some uh, consumer stocks in, in healthcare on underweights, which I, I found was an interesting mix. So that's out there. But we're also reworking our stock selection system. So we're going to whittle down the amount of stocks we have. We have 50 stocks that we pick every month. We're going to be doing 20. And we're also going to be using a blended quality plus uh, momentum approach, which is something that I've always liked personally. And so it'll be fun to put kind of a proprietary quality screen into our into our stock selection work. So that'll be next year. Um, but taking it outside the models, what we see for next year is the odds of a bear market growing. And so that's something we've been writing about. But before we anticipate a bear market and, and the reasons for that, we're going to just let our models guide us. But it's it's nice to always look around corners and say, okay, here's a potential pothole, um, elections coming up, different things like that, oil potentially spiking towards the end of next year. These things could be become bearish. So. And, and as for people who, uh, so Wisdom Tree institutional type uh, ETF provider, asset manager, does a lot of work. Who else are the types of clients that you would say are, could benefit from your work and, and, and have found to be useful clients there? We've had a lot of advisors, hedge funds, and family offices come in in recent months, especially uh, that mid-sized advisor. I think um, it's kind of an underserved market, and I think they're ready to you know, kind of access some of the tools that larger institutions have had for many years. And I think we're a bridge to those tools for them. And so, yeah, that's been a, a advisors and, and, and high net, really even some high net worth individuals. So that's basically our mix. And where can people find you? 314research.com, 314research.com. You can find me on Twitter, Warren Pies, at Warren Pies. Um, and you can find 314 on Twitter at 3F underscore research and we put a lot of free research out there for even if you don't want to subscribe we can you know hopefully give you something to think about as you scroll through social media well warren this has been fun thanks so much for doing this with us again uh, i'm jeremy schwartz I'd like to thank our producer patty hall our sound engineer chris tooks and uh, you can listen to us on our behind the markets podcast every week uh, we'll talk to you all next week have a great week everybody Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.